Hello, welcome to my podcast. Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold, and this is episode 17, Restoration. The last episode, I spoke about the end of the Taiping Rebellion and that the emperor, Xianfeng, had died. He had named his five-year-old son to succeed him. I also introduced one of the most important and controversial figures in the dynasties and maybe, in fact, China's history, Sixi or the Empress Dowager. Before I get into what this episode is about, I want to tell everyone about my new podcast series. I'm very excited about it, and I will provide more details at the end of this episode. This episode, I will cover the post-Taiping era, which was roughly a 20 to 30 year period. We, we will see that China begins to noticeably modernize. It would be an era where the Manchus attempted to restore China to its previous glory, honor, and place in the world. I will also cover and introduce a new player into the scene, Japan. Soon after the end of the rebellions, the Chinese treasury quickly recovered. It was restored. The Manchus soon embarked on a period known as the Tongzhi Restoration for the Emperor, or sometimes called the Self-Strengthening Phase. After the downfall of the Taiping capital, Nanking, In 1864, many contemporary Chinese recorded their praise for having witnessed a rare historical phenomenon. Their dynasty had seen terrific highs, praiseworthy world status, only to be beaten down in horrific and humiliating lows of recent and then to survive that and dramatically defeat widespread and powerful rebellions and unprecedented foreign invasions. Indeed, many historians have suggested that the Restoration was more impressive than anything before in world history in any nation. Unquestionably, the dynasty and the country had a new sense of purpose, a rebirth, if you will, a second chance. With relative peace now at hand, China could be allowed to rebuild, finally modernize, and reform itself. It was clear the country needed a new direction if it was going to survive. But I don't want the optimism to overtake the focus that is needed 
and the reality the country then faced. If we reflect back in the dynasty's history, the only comparison close to this era was the War of the Three Feudatories some 200 years before that time. In that conflict, you will remember, the dynasty would be severely tested and almost brought down. Something that was very similar to what had just occurred since 1840 in China. But I find that conflict, the Three Feudatories conflict, not too comparable to this modern time. The differences to me in each event and era were more than the similarities. So I think it's a little like comparing apples to oranges. To those contemporaries I just spoke about, I cannot help but to lay down a yellow caution flag to those that celebrated the re-rise of the Manchu Empire like a phoenix rising from the flames and believing the mandate of heaven had never been lost, would have to quickly face the sobering reality that everything has consequences. Except for a fleeting and feeble effort by the Manchus later at the turn of the century to turn around the dynasty, the restoration period and the effort was the dynasty's last meaningful chance. I say meaningful here cautiously. A good argument could be made it was already too late for the Manchu dynasty. The restoration effort would involve China's internal issues to reform those and to reform its external issues, its relations with other nations. Because of the young age of the emperor, most of the restoration's efforts, ideas, and directions came from the two dowagers, particularly Sishi. This is probably a hint of how those efforts, ideas, and directions ultimately worked out for China. I will begin discussion on the internal restoration effort. China finally understood it must modernize. The old Confucian emphasis on virtue gave away to the search for wealth and strength. An effort was made to revive agriculture and production and the technology that would be necessary in order to advance agriculture. There was also an effort to adopt foreign technology in other areas. Modern weaponry was studied, and slowly China began to manufacture modern weapons with the help from the West. There was also efforts externally for the restoration. The Qing dynasty began to recognize that they needed to learn Western culture and techniques and modernize their thinking and strategy. After all, 
the Japanese had taken this approach. And if Japan could change, why not China? The Manchus came to finally realize that they could get something out of, out of their discourse with other nations. The Qing dynasty noticed how faithfully the West abided by the treaties they made. They also observed that after the Allies left Peking, that they had occupied, they left the city largely unharmed. The Allies then could have done anything they desired, but did not. The Qing dynasty surmised that if they showed sincerity and good faith, they could reign in the West. So Western belligerents gave way to accommodation. The Westerners that the Manchus were dealing with now were not the barbarians that visited a century earlier. England even came to support their political stability in order to maintain their trade dominance. By 1865, England did not want to seek expansionist energy on China. They didn't want to waste their resources anymore. By 1880, China had taken its place in the family of nations. However, there were still many powerful and influential people that were reluctant to go along with these changes. They resisted modernization. The spirit of the old kingdom would linger. Some, after all, liked isolationism. At best, we can look at the Restoration period as buying the Qing dynasty time. For sure, many of the innovations they made during this time did not have lasting effects. And many have argued that the Qing dynasty only made halfway measures that, for a while anyway, did encourage investment and some positive energy. And, as will be seen, despite the restoration efforts by the dynasty, foreign nations still worked to nibble away at China's frontier and tributary states. I have said very little throughout this podcast series about Japan. There's a reason for that. Japan had been a tributary state of China for a time during the previous Ming dynasty. But after the year 1500, Japan rethought that arrangement and believed it to be humiliating. It discontinued contacts with China. And the Qing dynasty never really sought official relations with Japan. There was always going to be some discourse between the two countries. They, after all, are relatively close, but officially not. But with the opening of trade in China, traders from Japan began to appear. By 1870, the Japanese Meiji government decided to establish official relations with the Manchus. After some debate and hesitation 
by the Manchus, a treaty with Japan was agreed on in June of 1871. Its terms were a non-aggression pact, mutual cooperation in cases of conflict with a third power, mutual consular jurisdiction. There was also resolution of some trade issues and treaty ports. In 1872, Tongzhi decided he would take control of the dynasty. He was still a boy, or he was a young man of 16 then. But he quickly got in over his head. Despite some meager measures he implemented for political reform, he clashed with several officials in his administration. He quarreled with them, primarily over his plan to rebuild the Summer Palace. His opponents did not believe the empire had the money. One of the things, and maybe really the only thing he's most noted for, is that he eliminated the practice of the kowtow. You know, the ceremonial going down on your knees and touching your forehead on the ground. Tongzhi would die in January of 1875 at Beijing. He was only 19 years of age. Two causes of death have been given. Smallpox is the official one, and it's listed as such. The other cause was syphilis. And this primarily came from the fact that he allegedly had numerous affairs with prostitutes. Tongzhi accomplished little or nothing of substance during his reign. In his defense, however, he was fairly young for most of it, and his mother, the Empress Dowager, and his uncle, Uncle Gong, ruled for him. He died, however, without leaving any male heir. His death left a succession crisis. This one was unprecedented. There was an allegation that his empress was pregnant at the time of his death, but that was quickly squelched by the empress dowager. So, In the next episode, I will continue with the story. I want to begin the next episode with a discussion of the new emperor. And there's a lot more foreign interference and trouble. As I promised, at the beginning of this episode, I would give more information regarding my new podcast series. And I'm very excited about it and have already begun production of it. It will begin after the conclusion of this series on the Qing Dynasty. I will add more details about the new series in future episodes. So thank you, and it has been a pleasure.